curious minds. And here is your host, Gary Cachulio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cocciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic, binaural production engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us, and monthly co-host Cap Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. And you can find her at tarotbyginger.com. And if you're looking for advice or guidance or um, just general direction on making major decisions, I highly recommend her at tarotbyginger.com. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is William J. Peters. He is the author of At Heaven's Door, Door, What Shared Journeys to the Afterlife Teach About Dying Well and Living Better. And he is also a part of the Shared Crossing Project. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Gary. Good to be here. So, what got you interested in death and living? Well, you know, I, I I like that question because when I look back on my life, there's actually uh, one seminal event that changed the course of my life. And it was uh, unfortunate in the sense that it was a high-speed skiing accident, and I fell and cr- crushed my low spine. And as in that moment, I was catapulted out of my body. And I remember you know, drifting away from my body, uh, at first, slowly, I could see my body on the ski slopes. And then all of a sudden, I started accelerating, I could see uh, Lake Tahoe, since I was skiing at uh, Squaw Valley. Mm-hmm. And then I saw San Francisco Bay, and then continental North America. And I was very much at peace. But um I also realized pretty quickly when I went into uh, this tunnel, I saw my life played back for me in intricate detail. I had this sense as I looked through the tunnel and saw the light that I was dying. And I realized I was dying and I realized I'd been in this space uh, hundreds if not thousands of times before. And unlike most near-death experiencers, I did not want to die. I started pleading with that light. I grew up Catholic, so I referred to that light as as God. I said, God, don't let me die. Please don't let me die. I haven't completed I, what I came to that this life incarnation to do. I don't even know why I was, the, I don't know where those words came from. It's not like I knew what I was doing there. I was, quite frankly, floundering at 17 years old. Uh, but but that's what was coming up in me. And so I went into the light. I was very much at peace in the light. At that point, I was like, well, if I go back, that'd be great. But if not, I can handle this. It's sublime and loving and, you know, all the things that we hear about near-death experiencers. I, I really had firsthand. I felt a pushback on my body and I started moving away from the light. 
and I knew I was heading back to earth. And I said to uh, God at that point, uh, thank you. And, and I started moving back. And, I, and then as I was uh, moving away, I heard, you know, I didn't so much hear with my ears, but telepathically, make something of your life. Well, that was a pretty heavy um, comment, one that I've worked with, you know, m- the rest of my life, quite frankly. And yeah, so I came back into my body. That was some, at first I thought, how am I going to find my body on that ski slope in Squaw Valley, California? Uh, but I realized soon enough that this was all being guided and I was being pulled back uh, to my body. Uh, so yeah, so that's how that was my first experience. And I, it was a severe injury. I was lucky to, uh, be able to walk after it, but I've lived in a good deal of chronic pain and, and limitation. Um, I'm much better now, but there were times when I had difficulty walking and I've always had trouble sitting and doing, you know, uh, lost my identity as an athlete. And, you know, it just, it was a, it was a real, uh, significant trans, transformation that was required and and one that's you know in some ways not complete so but that's how I got into my my interest in death and dying uh really that was the first experience I didn't think about that experience at all I mean for almost a decade uh, but it changed me anyway I was changed a lot because I I wasn't able to pursue um kind of the program life I was supposed to have as a you know young man college grad go, I went to college and most of my friends were going off and you know finding good jobs and professions and I was wondering what's life all about here you know I, I've got chronic pain uh, I'm not really interested in you know making a lot of money because money isn't gonna take my pain away uh, so I found myself um, you know more interested in social service work and really quite frankly I was more interested in people who were dealing with a good deal of suffering and that uh, that transformation, if you will, that type of thinking was catalyzed by an experience uh, in uh, what is when those days was Yugoslavia. Now it's Bosnia. But I was traveling and in behind the Iron Curtain in 1985. And all of a sudden out of uh, I mean, I was traveling, I was going to uh to Dubrovnik, actually, we're in, in route. And on an overnight bus ride, I woke up and pulled the sash on the lines of the bus. And right in front of me were hundreds of minimum, just a, a, a whole town square full of women, Muslim women with burqas. All I could see was their eyes and they were begging. They had their hands out, stretched with very authentic, raw, almost primitive, um, just totally unguarded, um, no pretense, desperation. And that really struck me deeply. That got into my heart and soul and moved me. I, I was weeping while I was, you know, it, it kind of my eyes um, locked with one woman in particular she had a baby and I could tell she was you know she was sincere and and desperate 
Um, but what I learned was about myself was what these people have is what I need. I need to come into honest, authentic relationship with my pain and suffering. And, and that led me to Central and South America where I, and after, upon graduation, I made a commitment right there in that bus that I will, I have to be with people like this. I have to live with them, work with them. I just have to learn from them. They have something I need. I didn't know what that was. Anyway, so I found myself in Central and South America, uh, primarily Guatemala and Peru, both places in the late 80s that had civil wars going on and a good deal of suffering, um, you know, violence. Uh, you know, I was in a, a relatively safe place within a country, uh, Peru in particular, that had a civil war raging, but still came right up to face with uh, this same type of desperation, uh, raw, authentic suffering, and what's it all about. And, and, and I found those experiences extremely um, meaningful. And as a result, I left Central, I left Peru and went back and worked in San Francisco, uh, my job there was as a social worker uh, in inner city San Francisco, and I was hired because I was fluent in Spanish, but to deal with the immigration issue in, in California. Uh, and so I was working at first with a lot of uh, newly arrived immigrants, helping them get settled and find housing and what have you. But the AIDS epidemic, as we refer to it now, broke out while I was a social worker in inner city San Francisco. And here I was essentially helping primarily communities of gay men deal with this scourge of the HIV virus, which was rampant. And these deaths were ugly. These are, you know, deaths where you know, carparsis sarcoma on their skin and face and lesions and pussing. I mean, and so here I was. This time we didn't know if it was, how contagious HIV was. But I had this sense um, that it, that I was safe, and I don't know why, uh, other than the fact that that the leading doctor in our clinic was like, no, I, you know, the, the, this is not contagious through touch. It's, it's you know, sexually transmitted, bloodborne. Anyway, I... Uh, and that this gave me incredible access to this community of men that were dying with dignity and integrity and courage. And that is, these are the experiences, Gary, that got me intimately uh, in relationship with my own fascination with death and dying and, and desire to help learn how to do death differently and do it in a better way. Uh, and so I would have another near-death experience, um, and I would also, um, during my time uh, as a social worker, I uh, was privy to the first near-death, ex- the first shared-death experience, and, and just for your audience, the shared-death experience, this is what, I, what my book is about, this is what my research is about, and this is what I teach about. The shared-death experience is a little-known phenomena. Uh, although even though Raymond Moody wrote the first book on this in 2010 called Glimpses of Eternity, 
not to be confused with his Life After Life book on the near-death experience in the mid-70s. But he basically wrote Glimpses of Eternity because he was hearing about these experiences that were almost identical to the near-death experience, the NDE. But these were being experienced by caregivers, loved ones, or healthcare providers who were at the bedside of someone dying. So it's like you have these near-death uh, phenomena, but you're at the bedside of someone dying. Well, I, um, as you move through my life, I ended up working at hospice for a number of years. Um, and well, I should say in, in, during my time being a social worker during the AIDS epidemic, I heard about these shared death experiences. I remember a, a real transformative, uh, experience that opened my wa eyes wide open was from a, um, a leader in this community of, of uh, gay men in San Francisco. Uh, he was, you know, he was he was homeless. He was at a, he lived at a homeless encampment, but he was kind of a, a death doula or a death midwife, as he had been with many deaths. And he his name was um, Brad, and he came in one morning as just as I was, you know, starting my day. He was at you know the door of our center. And I could see he was exhausted and beleaguered. And I let him in. I said, wow, Brad, what's up? He goes, oh, Randy died last night. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. He'd been, Randy had been, you know, declining rapidly and suffering for many weeks. Uh, so when he finally died, I, I said to him, I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I also imagine it's a, a bit of a relief. And he says, yeah, he said, the death was so beautiful. I'm like, beautiful. Tell me more. And he said, well, when Randy died in that moment, he rose out of his body up a cylinder of light. And there we were, you know, all of us, my brothers there, you know, this was an encampment of primarily gay men. And they, he called, they referred to each other as brothers as they helped each other essentially die. And, and he says, as, as Randy got to the top of, you know, the group, if you will, he looked down at all of us and he was younger and he was healthy and he was smiling and he was happy and he thanked us all. He bowed to us and said, thank you. I'll see you later. I, I'm leaving now. I'm free. I'm healed and I'm moving on. And so when I heard that, I was like, whoa, that sounds just like my near-death experience. Well, I would hear more of these experiences um, in in my time as I got closer to these people, uh, to this community. You know, a handful. Not they weren't ubiquitous, but enough. When I heard them, I I would perk up and you know, and uh, and ask more. But as it turns out, I became increasingly interested in in death and dying, and in no uh, small part because my family. Uh, a number of people in my family contracted cancer and uh, and that got my attention. So I took a position with the Zen Hospice Project as a volunteer. Uh, and this is really important. I was training as a psychotherapist at that time. But in the in San Francisco, at the Zen Hospice Project was a very progressive hospice. And it was there that I would have really my first bona fide shared death experience working with an individual named Ron. And Ron was dying. Uh, very close to death. In fact, he was in within a few days when I when I had this experience. I'm reading to him as I did 
almost every afternoon that I was with him. Uh, we know in hospice that the, the hearing is the last sense door to go. So even though Ron was unresponsive, prone on his bed, hadn't opened his eyes in, you know, days, many days, probably a week or two, we still assumed that he could hear. So I was reading to him. And as I'm reading this story, all of a sudden I pop out of my body and I am looking down at my body and I'm still reading. And I look over at Ron's body, who's unresponsive on the bed, virtually no change in Ron, but to my right, suspended with me in a co-out-of-body experience, there is Ron, smiling. I see his huge face, big teeth, wide open eyes, as if to say to me, check this out. And I don't know how long we were up there. It wasn't that long. It's kind of a timeless space anyway. Uh, but that really arrested me in a positive way because I said, whoa, check this out. I was taken back. And then I realized, wait a minute. I kind of know about this state. This is, here I am. I'm alive out of my body. Well, um, I shared that with my supervisor, Eric, who was a really veteran of hospice. And he just kind of dismissed it as just saying, you know, a lot of things can happen here. But it wasn't until um, I, I listened to Raymond Moody in 2010. This is almost a decade later. Talk about the shared death experience that I realized, oh, my gosh. I've had these experiences. I've heard of them. I've had them myself. And uh, at that point, with the you know, after talking to Raymond and realizing that there was no research available at that time, this is now only 12 years ago, I decided to essentially uh, dedicate my professional career to the study and research of this phenomena and to develop methods to enable people who wanted to have this experience. Um, with their loved ones as they as they pass. So then that be, that is the beginning of the Shared Crossing Project and then our research initiative. So that's the long-winded response to your question there, Gary, but that covers it. So go ahead. Has, that, is, that is fascinating, absolutely fascinating, because I've had, you know, my first like – one is I got to be with family members as they were passing, and I found it, too, to be – I didn't have a shared death experience, but I found the experience to be really peaceful, you know. And and I realized after going through it a couple of times, like death is just as important as being born. And we run away from it. We we hide from it. We don't want to know about it. We don't want to see it, you know. And and I don't know. It, and I think that takes away from I think what you're kind of going to too, which is the experience of living. And I've also had my own near-death experience also. Uh, I was during an epileptic seizure, but I didn't want to come back. You know, my, mine was a little different. It was like, I think it was what they considered like a black light death experience. And, um, but I didn't want to come back. I was a little pissed off when I woke up in the ambulance. And, um, but it changed me. It changed me forever. I've not been the same person since then. Um, and, I don't, I, I think what you're doing is very, very important. I, I think the work that you're looking at is important. I think these idea, I've, I've heard about these shared death experiences too from other people who work in healthcare and things like that, you know, or doing that. Um, and what's interesting to me is if, if you can have that shared death experience with a person, like, can that be planned? Like, can, can you and a loved one say, 
okay, I'm going to be by your side as you're passing. I'm going to share this experience with you so you don't have to be alone. Can, can that be done? Yeah, that's a great question, Gary. And, and that, I mean, honestly, when I first was speaking to Raymond about the shared death experience, my and kind of downloaded response in me was, wow, not only do I know about these experiences, I can help people have them. Because I had a number of them, and they are similar to the near-death experiences as well. So I felt like, oh, I know the landscape. It's not a physical landscape. It's an energetic landscape. You, you, you know the feelings, the sensations, the you know, changes. And, um, and so I started developing methods uh, to help people, guided visualizations and attunement exercises and all sorts of um Essentially guided, guided interactive exercises, best done with between loved ones. But nowadays, everyone takes our workshops, uh, whether they're with a partner or a single or what have you. So, but, but yeah, that's the question. And, and I, you know, I started this program called the pathway program and the shared crossing pathway program to do exactly what you're asking about, Gary. And I started it in Santa Barbara. We tested it doing research and, um, found that the methods were, uh, we didn't know which of the methods were efficacious, but anecdotally, I haven't run the numbers on it. We will actually, uh, we're actually doing uh, another round of research to really check all the people, all the alums of our programs to see now over the last 10 years, uh, who's had these experiences, who's not, what are the circumstances. We're going to learn more about the efficacy of these methods. But I can say anecdotally, at least... 25% of the people will have a shared death experience. That I can wow. say pretty comfortably. I can also say that if you don't have a shared death experience, about 80 to 90% will have some sort of shared crossing experience. And I created the spectrum of end of life experiences. We call them shared crossing experiences. And these, these are communications across the veil. In other words, um, these are things like pre-death dreams and visions where I think you've probably, I mean, Gary, it sounds like you've been at some deaths. So you've probably seen people seemingly having conversations uh, with deceased loved ones. They're gesticulating, their eyes are wide open and peering into the, you know, the ceiling. They're, as someone would say, you know, I could see that my father was in conversation and he was glancing, gazing past me, through me. It was, it was like I wasn't even there. Um, so these are, these are uh, pre-death um, visitations or visions, and they're across the veil, and they're usually very comfortable. People, uh, the dying team to take comfort in that, their anxiety goes down after they have these. And it's as if they're, we, we think what their departed loved ones, deceased loved ones, are there to affirm them. And, and we often hear that, you know, someone dying who has one of these will come back and say, yeah, I saw my father and he said, everything's going to be okay. Get to, to get ready. And, you know, that they'll be coming soon. And in these, you know, when you have these, that you take great comfort in them. So the other experiences we have in the shared crossing spectrum, these shared crossings generally spoken, um, are post-death visions and visitations. And these are very common. I mean, the general public has these, you know, about a third to 50% of the general public, depending on the study, will have these. Um, but in my population, uh, much higher, 70, 80% uh, will talk about some sort of sense presence, 
of their departed loved one, usually in the first year. We only track in the first year. Uh, and they're meaningful. Uh, the person appears younger, appears usually at the foot of their bed or in, in the kitchen, some common place, and tells them, hey, I'm alive and well. I love you, and I'll see you again soon. Uh, I can talk more about the shared death experience to give a clear definition because what often happens when I talk about shared crossings generally is people say, well, how do you distinguish a, a shared death experience from a shared crossing? Right. One of the other things I was just thinking too is like, like, I'm not, like, is there a spectrum on this too? Because like the, the, the times that I've been in a room with a person dying, like, okay, I didn't have like a shared death experience, but I could feel a definite shift in the energy in the room. Yeah. Well, you're obviously quite attuned in that way. And that, uh, and that may be Gary, because you're a near death experiencer. And so having made that journey out of your body, having left your body for some period of time, uh, I have a hypothesis that, um, that those of us who do leave our body, we are able to leave our body with a little bit more ease. Mm -hmm. And we also recognize the energetic shifts that come about when you actually leave your body. It, it takes, it, it requires um, some very significant physiological and um, energetic um, soul related, if you will, whatever your consciousness, soul, spirit is as it leaves your body. That 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 lightens up, and it takes on a different energetic um, constitution. So, yeah, I and I think those of us who've had these experiences are really sensitive to that. Um, so, yeah, I think your let me ask you something. When you've been at the death of uh, a loved one, did you feel the room get full in a certain way? Did you feel it like warm up? Did you feel like there was some sort of, you know, if you were to put a word on it, it's like it was like it got full, like there were other beings here. You could feel it. It, that. it felt like it filled up with light. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and then it dissipated slowly. And then it was a, a sense of peace. Yeah. Yeah. So that's exactly what we see in our research. And I should say that, you know, we've researched, uh, we've have over 225 deeply analyzed uh, shared death experiences. And we have another 100 plus that we're going to be going over soon. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but what you're saying is exactly what we hear all the time. This, this huge shift at the moment of death that's expressed in different ways. Um, and sometimes it's light. So, so let me just give a little rundown on this. So what we see in the shared death experience that separates it from other shared crossing or end of life phenomena are there's a journey motif. In other words, there's a sense that someone is departing and that you can actually feel that sense that, uh, you can have it communicated to you. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. Is it certain something people will um, express or say that they hear, heard from their departing loved one? There's also people that go along with the dying. They accompany them and they see the the shared death phenomena, which is similar to the near death phenomena. They may see a life review of the dying. They may often see the light in the distance or a cylinder of light that they travel up. They may also see elevated spirit beings. Uh, and and they may also see deceased relatives. Obviously, these other more sublime feelings of euphoria, of a, a sense of oneness. Um, some experiencers say they knew everything when they were 
having the SDE. Any question they had was answered for them. So these are some of the common phenomena, and, and one of the phenomena that I'm most interested in is this: these elevated beans that are there, and we see this in about 16% of our cases, uh, that there's some presence that's there that is recognized as an entity or source that's in charge of this transition. It seems like this, this presence is managing the transition of a soul, spirit, consciousness from a human body into a benevolent afterlife. Uh, and I, I've, I've referred to this presence, if you will, as the conductor. It seems like somebody is conducting this transition. So that's, those are some of the major features in the SDE. And that is very different than a post-death visitation because in a post-death visitation, the uh, departed being shows up and they're there. And it's clear they've come from somewhere, but they're there present to deliver a very specific message, but there's no journey. There's no invitation for the surviving loved one to go anywhere or see anything other than this encounter in which the, which typically expressed, you know, you see I'm alive and well. Um, I love you. Uh, if he has a message for anybody, he or she has a message, it's delivered. But generally speaking, that's it. Um, yeah. That's interesting. So when I was a young kid, I, uh, there was one night where I couldn't sleep. And I got up in the middle of the night. It was like 3 a.m. I walk in the kitchen. My mom's sitting there awake. And I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I can't sleep. And I'm like, oh, I can't sleep either. So we stayed awake, you know, because, like, I had to go to school or whatever. So, like, But around 6 o'clock in the morning, the phone rings. And I find out that my great-grandmother passed away that evening. Does that fall under any type of experience? Yes. The premonition sort of or whatever? Yeah. So so on our shared crossing uh, spectrum of end-of-life experiences, which we call SELE for spectrum end-of-life experiences, that would – it doesn't sound like that would be a pre-death premonition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll tell you why. My sense is that you were awakened by some sort of energetic shift uh, of your grandmother uh, possibly coming by and telling you in whatever way that she could that she was dying and she was leaving. And you guys, you and your mother, felt this. You felt the uneasiness with this. And sometimes most of these SDEs, are very pleasant and, and, and sublime and wonderful. In some cases, though, it seems like to get our attention, the departing loved one or some source in charge of this whole thing, um, that want, there seems to be a connection between the dying and the surviving loved ones. And, and that is either there, there's a disturbance in that connection or they've come back and they're trying to get your attention. Something's going on, but we call these remote SDEs. In other words, you're not at the bedside. Mm-hmm. You're just doing your life. You're unsuspecting. And all of a sudden, you just realize you're up. You've been awakened. You're feeling something. It could be pleasant feelings. Typically, it ends with a pleasant feeling, like everything's okay. But it could also be if your person, we see this, unfortunately, in, in some cases, about 6%. Sometimes, um, 
the experiencer is feeling the the means in which the person dies. So a heart attack, um, if someone's dying of a heart attack, an experiencer may say that their heart got tight, they had trouble breathing for some time. And even more pronounced in terms of symptoms is an, an SDE experiencer uh, saying that they felt um, a loved one die of a drug overdose, and that could be nausea, sweating, vomiting, uh, heart uh, disruption, scary and painful. Uh, these tend to pass very quickly, and then and then when you when I work with them, because if I get these cases, um, I say to them right away, you know, I say to them, this is known, this is calm. We call this a sympathetic SDE. And that your love, your loved one may have been trying to reach out to you. And when they sit with that, they go, you know, it's so interesting you say that because I think I could feel some sort of uh, effort to get my attention through all of this, some sort of um, invitation to connect. So, so yes, to yeah, we, I hope this makes sense, Gary. Yeah. So how do we know that this is an actual phenomenon and not something that's being created by our imagination? Yeah, wonderful question. Um, <clears throat> you're reminding me of what um, my publisher, the editor for my book at Simon & Schuster said to me, just that. Um, gosh, William, this is all spectacular. These stories are incredible, but how do you know these people aren't just making this stuff up? And I said, well, the shared death experience isn't even known in our culture. And yet... When these people, when we, when these people come to me, they have no idea of the shared death experience. What they're trying to do, they come to me as a trained psychotherapist who specializes in end of life and they want to know, did I, did I go crazy? Am I crazy? And what I do is I listen to them tell the entirety of their experience. And I, even before I, you know, started writing my book and, and, and conducting the research in depth, I had identified a very pronounced pattern uh, that these people had no idea about. I would just ask a series of questions and I'd go invariably, you know, if they see a departed loved one, tell me about that loved one. Um, how do they look? If they say younger, you know, and a vital and completely alive and then I know we're on to something because you don't you can't really make that kind of stuff up unless you're trying to fill into a trope that exists in our in our uh, culture. But but the mm -hmm. SDE trope does not exist. Now, an argument can be made and we're well aware of this is that, you know, the research that me and my team have conducted is the virginal research as the popularity of the SDE grows. Then, of course, the integrity of the research needs to be um you know, needs to be analyzed for, for that, you know, looky lose, so to speak. People are trying to, uh, not looky lose, people who are trying to, um, essentially replicate an SDE for themselves or at least give that presentation that they have one. So, but Gary, for the first, you know, now 250 cases that I've looked at plus, and by the way, even before I started collecting cases, I had heard, you know, five, six, seven hundred of these and, and it was just incredible. I mean, what you hear, um, is profound. And they're different than, they're slightly different than the SDE in a certain way because the experiencer is the caregiver loved one, um, 
which is different from an S, an NDE because they're having the actual brush with death. So the way they describe things is a little bit at a distance. Um, uh, but, and so you, you get the nuances of what they see and how they describe it. Uh, the other one that I like to talk about is the fact that there's always this journey. There's always this progression going on and, and, uh, and to really suss out where they are, what they're seeing. And I kind of, I know the geography now, so I can tell if someone's, you know, fibbing. But the truth of the matter is I haven't had, uh, many cases at all, um, that, that the person wasn't telling the truth. More often than not, they are desperate for affirmation that this is a real experience because it's so profound to them. And I should say the, 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 the therapeutic value Positive benefits are just remarkable. You know, 89% believe that their loved one is alive and well in a benevolent afterlife. Most of those believe they'll see their loved one again. They'll be reunited. Um, death anxiety and fear drops in, you know, the vast majority of our uh, experiencers. Their grief is significantly uh, more manageable. Not that they don't miss the loved one. They do. If you, you know, loved one leaves your life, it's gonna, you're gonna feel heartache for a while. But they seem to hold it all with a, within a larger context of understanding of like, this is a natural part of life. We're all gonna die. And the afterlife is beautiful. So they seem to have more of a curiosity and acceptance of death that uh, helps their grief. So, so yeah, those are, those are some of the, those are some of the benefits. So as you collect this data, um, on all these shared death experiences. Um, is there a hypothesis that you are trying to validate or are you just picking up common, common denominators through all these experiences and creating one as you go on uh, like what it is? I mean, well, I mean, I guess the big question is if we are spiritual energetic beings, why would we, why are we given bodies for a temporary po- period of time? You know? Well, yeah, those are the big questions, um, about the meaning and purpose of a human life. Yeah. Uh, why do we incarnate? And, you know, I, I don't, uh, my response to this is not, um, derived solely from my experience as a near-death experiencer, shared-death experiencer, and researcher into these uh, shared crossing phenomena. I also uh, am a past-life regression therapist, and it's, in particular, I regress people into the space in between lives. And I have found, as as the past-life regression literature has has pointed out, that it seems as if life, this human life, is a kind of school for learning. Um, and, you know, I hold to that quite lightly. I don't, I don't make any declaration that that's the way it is. I think I like the term you use, hypothesis. That's kind of the way I see it. Um, but like I said, I, I, don't, I don't hold fast to that. I don't try and defend that in any aggressive way. It just seems to make sense that, the earth realm is hard and, and you come here, you take on adversity, you hope to learn some things, evolve your soul, spirit, consciousness, and, you know, 
go back to the spirit realm, which is more your home, and contribute there as well. I mean, one one um, description of a human life, or maybe just you know beings in general, is that we're aspects of God, the source, if you will, that have been projected out with free will so that God can have an experience of his or her, uh, they, their self in some profound way. And, you know, that may seem kind of bizarre, but uh, I think, you know, as I weigh on that one, it seems like, wow, I do think there's some magical uh, evolution in in humanity and the natural world and what have you that is quite beautiful. And it may be that this loving source that is creation is somehow deriving meaning from this experience of, uh, of, of watching the evolution of ourselves and kind of a co-creative reality. Interesting. I, I, I do agree with the idea that, that there's probably some type of consciousness and is projecting itself, trying to, I don't know, come up with its own reason, trying to figure its own self out. And the only way you can do it is by creating us. I, I would agree, Gary. I think, I mean, I, I say this, I hope I'm saying this not in any declarative, definitive manner. I think at the end of the day, it's all a, a profound mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as if I were, if you, if you ask and you did, that's my hypothesis. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm a psychotherapist working death and dying and study it. I mean, and I hear people's life stories. You know, a lot of them are, are, are beautiful and meaningful, but honestly, the vast majority are, are, are really laden with, you know, challenges and loss and grief and pain and strife. And there's a good deal of learning within that. Um, but this can't be the end all. There, there's got to be more because it just doesn't add up. Mm. Um, one of the things that just I think about when I had my near death experience, and, and since you're in the medical clinical profession, you know when I had told my doctor what I experienced, I got the generic well, just electrical like. Electric activity in your brain flashing in and out. That's what you're perceiving. There's no evidence of this afterlife. Like, do you think that one, as a medical professional, that, that doctors should be telling people this? You know, and, you know, how, how does a doctor or a medical professional even handle that type of situation when they're presented with the, Somebody who's died and come back and they said, Hey, I had this experience. You know, do you, you know, is this something that's common or what? Or they're, they're looking for answers. And when these medical profession, professionals are not, you know, not able to provide valid answers, is there, any, is there anything that your work sort of points to in that direction? Well, <clears throat> great question. Um, I think you're spot on. I think depending on where you are, in the healthcare system, your training, how open-minded you are, the SDE 
is largely been accepted as a real phenomena in our culture. Now, most well-trained medical professionals will honor the experience. What they make of it, you know, can be anywhere from dying brain syndrome, you know, uh, which is kind of disparaging. Uh, mm-hmm. If you say that you're seeing the light and you say that you're seeing loved ones and and elevated spirit beings, da, 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 and they say, well, it's just it's just an artifact of your dying brain. That's pretty much um, dismissive of the profoundness of your experience. But I think increasingly healthcare providers are seeing that that there is something else going on here, um, and and that it is profound, and and the, and the healthcare system is evolving slowly. But it is evolving. Now, to be clear, the current understanding of consciousness by medical sciences is that the physical brain creates consciousness. They don't, so that at the moment of death, there should not be anything surviving. It, everything should shut down. There should be no consciousness. So the NDE, really um, cast some doubt on the uh, merits of the current medical view of consciousness as produced by the brain. The shared death experience provides more evidence uh, that supports this notion that they don't have this right, that there is act- consciousness is actually independent of the physical body and brain and it seems like it, it, the consciousness exists in the body for a while during a human life. And upon human death, it retreats. It, it, it departs. Now, um, I should say that, that the phenomena of the shared death experience, like the near death experience, is also now recognized in the medical literature. Uh, my team wrote the first SDE article in December of 2021 it was published in the american journal of hospice and palliative medicine and it was very well received uh, by the reviewers and as you know one of the comments was we all know these experiences take play uh, occur we've just never uh received a research paper that provided the validation for this pattern uh thank you so much to your research team so um it's gaining acceptance is the SDE and but I think you know to your point the healthcare system uh is going to play catch up on all this uh and we hope that that they continue to move in this uh direction of acceptance interesting um so I also wonder too you know the the other side of this is Culturally, at least in the United States, we don't want to see people die. We kind of, we, we, we know that we're all going to die. And but when it's actually happening to somebody, we try to turn away from it, not look at it. We look at it as this negative event, you know, you know, cause, cause we're going to feel pain. We're going to feel grief. We're going to feel loss. So it has to be bad. And, so, so a lot of people, when a person or family member is dying, they don't want to be there. So they, they, they deny themselves of a shared death experience. 
where if we're present with people as they're passing, we can have those experiences. And then afterwards, I think it lessens the grief, or not lessens the grief, but, but you have some kind of knowing that of peace, that, that, that everything is okay. Do you think that, that doing some of your work is going to help change our cultural view on death and how we handle it in being present as people, as people are dying? Because I believe that it's just as important to be with people as they're passing as it is to be with a, a mother and child as they're giving birth. Well, you're like giving voice to our mission statement. You know, the, the shared crossing mission statement is to uh, transform people's relationship to death and dying through raising awareness and educating people about these profound shared crossing experiences. And we want to bring people together to dialogue about these so that we together can uh, create a new culture uh, around death and dying. So you're absolutely right. I, I you know, it's why, you know, I'm thankful for your invitation to join you today here, Gary, is that my mission is to get these experiences out to your community, have people start talking about it. I can assure you that, you know, a significant percentage of your listeners will have had these experiences. Yes. And, and they may not even have known prior to hearing our conversation mm -hmm. that these experiences have names. They are now researched. It's shared death experience, shared crossing experiences, post-death visions and visitations. You know, there is a lexicon for this phenomena. And the lexicon is helpful because it validates the experience. It gives people a name. And, and my, you know, part of my goal in, in, you know, in doing this is obviously to get to healthcare providers so that if, you know, if your listeners and the general public, they're in a hospital, they have this experience. And they say, you know, this may sound crazy, but I, when my mother was dying, I, I felt her, her mother here, my grandmother. And you want that healthcare provider to say, you know, that's a real beautiful experience you had. And it has a name. It's called a shared death experience. And, you know, you can look it up online and learn more about it. By any, by any chance, did you have any other experiences? Well, it's funny you should say that because I also felt like I was seeing the review of my mother's life. I like felt like I was looking at her as a child and I never knew her as a child. And I saw her go through high school and college and start a family. It's like, I don't know where I saw these images, but it's like I was seeing them. And so there you have it. You know, it's like, yeah. And that's called a past, uh, that's called a life review. And that too is part of the shared death experience. And that too is a gift for you. How do you feel after you've had these? Well, I feel like that my mom let her let me know that that she's still alive now and that she showed me how her life evolved and and you know and I'm really grateful for this experience to have shared this with her and see her alive and well and in an afterlife. So that's the North Star, uh, Gary, is to get to a point where we have medical practitioners who can actually affirm these experiences at, at a minimum and obviously um at a minimum, excuse me, affirm them as a, as a maximum, like the North Star. At a minimum, let's not disparage them and say things that we often hear in our research. And I'm going to say to you that 39% of our 200 plus interviewees state that they felt, um, 
scared and um, fearful of sharing their story. And in many cases, when they did, they feared ridicule. And in a lot of these cases, they did feel like their experience was dismissed or discounted, in some cases disparaged. And some of the terminology you'll hear from medical personnel sounds something like, well, you were under a great deal of stress. And I could imagine that your mind was, you know, imagining a lot of different things at that time. And I think you just need to, you know, go home and rest and, um, you know, you'll, you'll get better over time. Thank you for coming in. And I'm sorry about the loss of your whoever. So those, those types of very erudite, mm-hmm. um, kind of top down paternalistic expressions that literally eviscerate someone's experience. Um, are not helpful and they're far too common still. Um, but, but we're changing this. I think there are more and more, there's more and more openness about these experiences. One of the experiences too that I've had, and I don't know if, if this even falls into a topic, but when my dad was in hospice, he wanted to die at home. So I was the one to take care of him and administer the, the medic- medications as he was passing. And one of the things I did is I put a baby monitor in his room so I could hear if he wanted food or if he needed anything or whatever. He was having conversations constantly with deceased family members. And I could hear him talking and having these conversations through the baby monitor. And they were full conversations. Does that fall anywhere under what you're talking about? Yeah, if you remember in the in the first part of our conversation, we talked about pre-death visions and visitations. Yeah. Some people refer to these as pre-death dreams. I don't like the term dreams, and so I don't use it because dreams dreams suggest dream that these are dreams, but they're not dreams because but these are experiences that happen during a sleep state, and so we tend to associate any type of phenomena that happens while we're sleeping is a dream but they're not dreams they're visions or visitations and you can and i can tell you why um these conversations are coherent they're well organized um they tend to have a deliberate pace and structure to them they feel like often like the person they're communicating with is right here yes um and so Yes, th- that experience you had or you listened via the baby monitor tube is a pre-death vision or visitation. Hmm. Yeah, it was, it was crazy because it was like it was like the conversations were these family members trying to convince him to let go and cross over. That's what I was hearing. That makes sense. And and oftentimes that's in the literature too is that the message in these pre-death visions and visitations is, hey, you're going to be okay. We're going to help you. You've got relatives on the other side waiting for you. Just trust and let go. So they're loving guys on the other side. So it's real. Oh, it's absolutely real. I mean, there's a study out by uh, Dr. Christopher Kerr of Buffalo Hospice, he's published in numerous academic medical journals, uh, and he calls these end-of-life dreams, but he thinks in his inpatient hospice in Buffalo that about 80 to 85% of his patients have these pre-death visions visitations, and, uh, and he tracks them. 
do you plan on taking when you, when you publish your research in the results? Is it your hope um, when, you, especially when getting it out to the medical professionals and people in the hospice and places like that, um, that it will help them take this? You know, like like you're, like you're telling them basically, this is a real phenomenon. Don't ignore it. Don't dismiss it. Treat it as a real thing. That's the hope. That's the hope. You know, the literature's only been out for eight months now. And um, and the, the part of the medical establishment that's gravitated to this is the nursing community. Mm-hmm. They are at the bedside, typically. They know about these experiences. And what they're looking for is permission from their... Uh, med- from the medical doctors to talk about these experiences with family and to affirm them. Um, a lot of doctors are suspect about becoming a hospice that has these woo-woo spirits around it. You know, they don't want to, they feel like <clears throat> that the shared death experience and all these visions and visitations may somehow portray them as a less than um, scholarly and therefore competent hospital if they have all this talks of uh, visitations and shared death experiences, all that. So that's a cultural problem. Uh, this next question is a tough one. It's a tough one even for you to ask. <laughs> when people reach a certain state, we know they're going to pass. But loved ones keep them alive anyway, or keep the body alive. Where it almost seems like we're torturing a person rather than helping them cross. How, I mean, what do you think should be done in those situations? And how do you do you think that your work can help people realize, like, stop torturing this person, let them go? Yeah, I mean, I'm an advocate for um, preparation, um, conversations with, between the dying and their loved ones about what do you want at the end of life? What are the what are the conditions you want? If you lose this ability or have to experience this type of medical intervention with side effects that are, you know, of this variety, some of which are quite painful, what? How do you want us to manage your medical care? Um, and when you infuse this question of end of life experience with the reality that the shared death experience and shared crossings can happen, then that, um, tends to impact, um, the medical interventions that the dying will request. If they know they're going to a good place and they have a good experience about to happen to them at the time of death. Well, they probably want to be as conscious as they can be, less medication, and they don't want to get themselves in a pain cycle that could take their concentration away for a benevolent um, shared crossing. So my hope is that that the medical people will, the medical um, providers will engage more directly with finding out what people's preferences are and also informing them of the shared death experience and other shared crossings that you might want to research and see how you might have them.
Yeah, like one of the scenarios I sometimes think about is like somebody's dying, we know they're dying, you're just keeping them alive because we're waiting for Uncle Ernie to fly in from Nevada so he can say goodbye and apologize to his brother so he doesn't feel guilty. <laughs> like, like That's kind of, very common. Yeah. We do find that um, the dying will often hang around, often feeling stuck <clears throat> because they're waiting for some sort of forgiveness redemption, acknowledgement, healing in a relationship. This is a big part of my uh, the pathway program I taught you, I talked about um, for people who want to have the shared death experience and other shared crossings is that you got to deal with your own visions, business. You really, there's some psycho-emotional steps in there that just, you know, have you do an inventory of people you might want to reach out to and say, I'm sorry to, mm-hmm. and, uh, and forgive yourself for some things you've done. I can see how that definitely makes life better for everyone and dying easier for everybody. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this has been, I want to thank you for coming on today. This has been a great conversation. Uh, love to have you back on again and talk a little bit maybe about the past life regression end of it too. If you would I would love interested. to. And um, before we wrap it up, where's the best place for my listeners to find you and find your book? Yeah. So, um, SharedCrossing.com uh, is where you can find information about um, you know me and my work, and the book is there as well. You can also find the book anywhere books are sold. Uh, Simon Schuster is the publisher. Uh, you know, I encourage you to talk to your local bookstore, just because it's always to keep it's wonderful to keep that local bookstore mm-hmm. culture alive and well, so we can have that beautiful experience of you know roaming into our <laughs> local bookstore and not knowing what we'll find there Um, and getting, you know, getting, yeah, it's just, you get the point on that one. So yeah, but it is available anywhere at heaven's door. And then the other thing I would encourage your listeners is, you know, when you can go to our website and go to our story library, you go sharecrossing.com stories and, and you can see um, videos of experiencers sharing their stories firsthand. And that is very compelling. Uh, that way, you know, you can hear what I've said today, but then you can go and see, you know, 10 or so different shared death experiences, men and women, different cultures, different walks of life, and really get that, wow, this experience is truly remarkable um, and common because you see that here are these average people sharing these experiences. Uh, and they did not know what it was, most of them, until they they came into contact with me and my team so so yeah oh by the way if you do if you're if your listeners do want to learn how to have a shared crossing mm-hmm. um we have an online program uh that we're going to be hosting in november there's also an in-person program in october and uh, i'm re- i reside in santa barbara california uh so we have it out here live both of the venues are quite efficacious and, and there's also, if you want to do a deeper dive on the SDE, there's, you, there's, we have uh, self-study programs that you can pick up on our website. And uh, one of them I did with Raymond Moody, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raymond and I did a great course. And so there you have the two pioneers, you know, Raymond being the first and me really the first one to do the research on this. That's fantastic. Uh, definitely we'll put the links uh, to your book, to your website, and anything else that you want me to put in the notes of this episode for my listeners to to check out. 
And it was again, it was, it was a pleasure having you. And I hope we get to do this again. Gary, I look forward to it. Thank you for the really uh, insightful interview. Very engaging. Thank you. Thank you. And just hang on for one moment. I'm just going to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. Love what you listen to today. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable with Gary Cochulio.